Amen. Hey, uh, you're looking good. Church, hope you feel good. Grab your Bible. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 12. We're starting a brand new series uh, that really takes us all the way to Christmas when we begin to celebrate Christmas. I know some of you freaks have begun to celebrate it already and your lights are up. Enjoy the now, people, okay? So anyway, we're, it, it, the series is called Sovereign Legacy and we're going to study four generations, Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob and Joseph over the next bunch of weeks. And the reason we've called it Sovereign Legacy, and this might resonate with you, if it doesn't right now, it will at some point in your life, that God is still in control. He's still got the whole world in his hands. And though your world may feel like it's totally out of control, that doesn't mean that God has lost control. And that only an almighty, sovereign God, all-powerful power, all maker of the heavens and earth, that he and he alone could take the decisions that you and I make, the good ones and the bad ones, the things that we do for him, and even the evil things that we do for us. And somehow God, um, in his infinite might and power and love and grace and mercy, weaves those things together for his glory and for our good. And the decisions that you make today will affect, really, it, it will leave your legacy. It will affect your children and their children and their children. And the people that we are looking at, um, the things that they were involved in were, were are 4,000 years old, and yet they still impact us today. And so that's why we've called this thing um, Sovereign Legacy. And we're going to start out with Father Abraham. And maybe you've heard of Father Abraham. You have many sons. You know, that, that little song. If you grew up in church, maybe you sang that. And, and so we're going to pick it up in chapter 12, verse 1. And I'm just going to go ahead and give you a disclaimer here. His name starts out Abram, and it gets changed to Abraham. Abram means father, and Abraham means like father of many fathers or father of many nations. And his wife's name starts out Sarah, which is hard for me to say without thinking about it. And it gets changed to Sarah. So just hold the emails. I will probably call them Abraham and Sarah more than Abram and Sarah. So just, you know, email somebody else. All right, here we go. Chapter 12, verse 1, here we go. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go. Now, just a little commercial break real quick. In your seat back in front of you, you have this missions brochure. And at the bottom of it, it says, go. So, by faith, Abraham is going to go. In the New Testament, in this thing called the Great Commission, Jesus gathers all his people together before he floats up to be with, with God the Father until one day he returns. And he says to us, go into all nations and make disciples. All right? And so, we as a church, we are a going church. Maybe you've heard here that if you're going to call yourself an 1122 or you got three years to go on a mission trip, yes and amen. That doesn't mean you got to go every three years, but in the first three years you're here and you say, yep, that's my church, I want you to go on a mission trip. Now, I want you to live missionally all the time, that you're making disciples as you're on the go, at work, at school, wherever, wherever, okay? But in the first three years, I want you to sign up and go to another context, because what will happen is as you take the gospel and you're like, well, I don't think I can offer anything. God felt the same thing about you and loved you and adopted you anyway, okay? And he only taught you to teach them to obey what he had taught you. Does that make sense? All you got to do is tell them what you know. And we want you to go because what will happen, I promise, what will happen is when you go and as you're on the go, God will do things in you and through you and to you. And when you get home, you will learn to live more missionally because you went on a short-term mission trip. So I know everybody's got excuses. That's fine. Um, and, and so we want you to go to this mission fair on October the 27th. And we want you to go. And if you're like, well, I ain't going. Well, that's fine. We're all going. We're going to make fun of you when we get home. Okay? So I'm just saying, we're a going church. So if you're not going, then you're just not going to fit in at that church. That's what I'm saying. So three years ago, if you've got legit excuses, medical reasons, whatever, we've got some, we've got some like in-town things that you can go on to. So Please check that out. If you get bored during the sermon, just take out that brochure and learn more about that. Or you can download all that information on your app. 
So chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord says to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Verse 2. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Essentially, the blessing that he's talking about is Jesus. So out of Abraham is going to come the nation of Israel, and out of the nation of Israel is going, to become, is going to come a Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, that dies on the cross, that blesses all families for all eternity. That's the promise. Verse 4, so Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Now, let me tell you about the problem when you read Bible stories like this. First and foremost is you think of it as a Bible story, and that's the problem. You see, especially the older you are, the worse this is. If you grew up in Sunday school with flannel graph, you got no hope, all right? And if you don't even know what that is, welcome to 1122. So glad you're here. Now, here's the thing, because you think it's like a story, like all the other, like Humpty Dumpty or some other story that you've heard. That sometime, a long time ago, there once upon a time was a man named Abraham, and he was like a superhero. Wrong, wrong answer, right? This is an actual event that happened in human history. That I'm not, and I try to steer away from the word story because I don't want you to think like Bible story. I want you to think about this. There's a dude named Abram, and God told him to do something, and he did it. Now, listen, husbands, wives, do something else. Listen, husbands. Imagine, imagine that today in this service, God tells you to do something. And I know that he will by the way that you look at me, by the way that you sit there with your arms crossed and never take notes. I can tell that you are fully engaged with everything that God is telling you to do here. And just imagine in that moment, you know, your wife's not paying attention because she's got other stuff to think about, but you are dialed in. And in this service, God speaks to you and tells you to do something. That God says, go but he doesn't even tell you where yet, okay? And then you were to leave here after, after this service and go to the game. And then after the game, you, you say, hey, hon, we need to talk. She said, yeah, babe, what, what do you need? And you, you were to say this, the Lord has spoken to me about our family. What would your wife do? I know what she would do because she's an 1122 wife. She would put the kids away and she would get her journal and she would crisscross applesauce in front of you and she would say, speak to me, O head of our household, right? I know that she would. And then you would say to her, God has commanded us that we are to go. We're going to sell our house. We're going to pull the kids out of school, we're going to move away from our job, move away from our friends and our family and our church, and that's what we're going to do, and we are going to go, and we're going to go west, because you can't go east very far, so we're going to go west, and then your wife would say, what would she say, where, and you would say, he hasn't told me yet, now what would happen, you'd go to sleep that night, and I know what would happen to you, You'd wake up the next morning, and your wife, in faith, would have the swagger wagon all packed up, the sign in the yard, the kids packed, and say, oh, lead us, lead us, lead us, oh, head of the house. Isn't that how it goes for you? That's how it goes for me, too, all right? So here's what you guys think. This is a real conversation that Abraham has to have when he gets home. Hey, baby, what? God said go. Where? I don't know. You get this? So I've, I've just asked God, I can't tell God what to do, but I said, God, if you're going to tell me something like this, will you tell us at the same time, just so I don't have to have that one-on-one? I'm like, hey, that's what he said. You get this? So who has more faith? Abraham's got faith. What about Sarah? 
I mean, she's got to have all kind of faith to be like, all right, I'm with you. And they went. I mean, the one word that we're going to see over the next few weeks, the one word that really describes who Abraham is is this. It's faith. It's faith. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. That it's faith. Now, a lot of us have a total misunderstanding of what faith is. Faith is just simply this. Faith is, God, I trust that you are who you say you are and you'll keep your promises. That's what faith is. God, I trust that you are who you say you are and that you'll do everything you said you were going to do. That's just what faith is, okay? And so what Abraham does is by faith, he just does what God calls him to do. So something else that's very, very important is this, is that obedience matters. Obedience matters. It matters a lot. Now, I don't, I mean, I preach grace, 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 grace all the time. Why? Because that's what the whole point of the gospel is. That we're saved by grace through faith, not of our works, not because we are good enough, so that not, we don't have anything to brag about. There's no condemnation in Christ. That, that God did not send his son to condemn the world, but to save the world. Okay? All of that, yes and amen, is true. But once you are saved, then the way you act really reveals if Jesus is your Lord or not. That obedience matters. That if your Lord tells you to do something and you go, nah, I'm not doing that, it may be evidence that he's actually not your Lord. And you're really just faking the whole thing. Obedience matters. Guess what? Do you think Abraham had any idea what hung in the balance when God commanded him to go? Folks, he had no idea. And you know what hung in the balance? The salvation of all humankind. Because from Abraham's obedience, he goes to the promised land. And in the promised land, eventually, there's the nation of Israel. And out of the nation of Israel comes the Messiah, Jesus, that dies for the sin of all of us. He had no idea what hung in the balance. Some of you, God has called and commanded you to do something. To do something. To quit your job, to start something, to start a ministry, to say something to that person that you work with. Whatever it is, he's called you to do something. And I would just ask you, so why aren't you doing it? And do you know what hangs in the balance? You have no idea. It could literally change the trajectory of your family line for years and years and years and years. And what it boils down to is right now, you being obedient to trust God or not. And it's what Abraham does. So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot, that's his nephew, went with him. Verse four and a half. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed for Haran. Now, I'm going to just do a little pastor privilege here. And I would like, it's a little bit dangerous, if you are, if you don't mind people knowing this, and you are 70 and up, would you please stand up? We just want you to stand up. If you are 70 years old or older, please stand up, okay? Yeah, come on. And you got to stay up for a little while, all right? Now, stay up, stay up. Here's what I want to tell you. Here's what I want to tell you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for being a part of the Church of 1122. With everything I have, I just want to say thank you. Without you, this isn't even a real church. It's just a tired old youth group, okay? I don't, I don't want to ever be an old Walmart full of all 20-year-olds. The concentration of ignorance there scares me to death, all right? If you get 6,000 20-year-olds together, run for your lives. It's going to burn down. And so, I just thank you so much for being here. And I know this too. As you look through church history, here's what I know to be true. That revival tends to start with the younger generation. They get real excited about Jesus and everybody gets excited with them. Okay, yeah, that's awesome. Awesome, awesome. 
But the foundation of faith is laid by you and your generation. And every single week when we show up here, I know that we, I, am standing on the shoulders of the faithfulness laid down by you and your generation. And I thank you, thank you, thank you. Right, 1122, thank you so much for being here. Amen. And then, and then one last thing to you, and God's not finished with you. He's not. He didn't start with Abraham until he was 75 years old. God's not finished with you. And here's how I know that he's not finished with you. Because you're here this morning. If he was finished with you, we'd be doing your memorial, not applauding you here at church, okay? As long as you're on this side of the topsoil, folks, then he's got plans for you. And I really believe that this next decade could be the biggest things for the kingdom God has used you for, even bigger than the decades that you've lived before. So just in faith, continue to listen to God and step out in faith. And thank you, thank you, thank you for being a part of this. And so Abraham, 75 years old when he does this. Verse 5, and Abram and Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions, he, he takes them and he he goes, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land of the place called Shechem to the oak of Morah. And you wonder, why, why does the Bible have details like this? Well, here's why. Because it's an actual event. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a myth. It's not a long time ago in a land far away. No, it was in Shechem by the oak of Morah. And so when people would read this, they'd be like, I know where that oak tree is. I got a tree stand in that as a kid. That's like it's an actual place, actual people. It all really happened. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land, verse 7. And when the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So, you've arrived, Abram. Okay? This is it, the promised land. And so, Abram built there an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. And so, what you'll see here, once again, is what we talk about here all the time at the end of the service, is that Abraham worships God. Worship is our response to God. Worship is not something we do to try to get God to do something for us. It's the other way around, that worship is our response to God for who he is, and in our case, what he's done. In Abraham's perspective, worship was was Abraham's response to God for who he is and what he promised that he was going to do, okay? And what we worship is the exact same thing. We're worshiping Jesus, and Abraham's worshiping Jesus to come. We're worshiping the same thing. We respond to God for who he is and what he has done or what he's going to do. Now, what I want you to do, I need you to skip over to chapter 15. Do not read the end of 12, 13, or 14, okay? Because I'll never get you back, all right? It's, 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 kinda, it's, very, it's like tabloids of the Bible, all right? We'll get back to that, but don't read it right now, all right? You've never wanted to read your Bible more than this moment right now, have you? But skip it, skip it. Look at me, don't look at your app. All right, here we go. Chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, now we'll get back to these things. These things are chapter 13 and 14. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Listen. The most commanded thing in the entire Bible is this. Do not be afraid. In the King James Version of the Bible, some combination of don't be afraid, fear not, don't be worried, be anxious for nothing, some kind of combination of don't be afraid is mentioned in the King James Bible 365 times. Why do you think God tells his people one time every single day of the year to not be afraid? Because we're afraid. That's why. Because we're fearful. God doesn't waste a lot of ink. When he says things, he says them on purpose. And this is what's so important, okay? Is that the the Bible says, um, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And please listen to me here. Because some of you feel like you have a faith struggle. Me too, all right? That, That the opposite of faith 
is not doubt. We'll talk about that in just a second. The opposite of faith is fear. You see, some of you think, well, I don't have enough faith because I've got all these questions. I've got all this doubt. We're going to address that in a second. Abraham's got a lot of doubt, but he also is a man of faith. You see, the opposite of faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith is fear. And here's why. Here's why I say that. Because fear paralyzes. And faith always produces action. That fear paralyzes. In fact, one of the reasons that you're not being obedient to do what God has called you to do, it's not your doubt. Like God has, God has um, called you to do whatever it is, right? Start a new company, quit your job, start a mission organization, share your faith with your friend. Whatever it is, it's not, it's not if God would answer these three questions, then you would step into it. It's really because you're afraid, isn't it? And so then the question I would ask you is this, is what are you afraid of? Are you afraid you're going to fail? No problem. Put your faith in God, not in you. If you're putting your faith in you, you should be very afraid. That's my personal testimony. Because whenever I've tried to do things on my own, it's very problematic. In fact, that's why I don't preach a lot of like personal motivation kind of sermons. And to be honest, I believe the way God has wired me and the people that God has assembled here, I could do a heck of a job of that. I mean, I could get us in here and get the right Old Testament verses out of context and then right at the right time, you know, do a good video and then Ben comes up. My eyes have seen the coming. And we would be like, and we would march out of here like soldiers ready to attack hell with a water gun. Woo, we'd be fired up. The problem is it wouldn't make it past the parking lot because that personal motivation wears off quickly, doesn't it? And so what God says here, though, is fear not. Why? Because I'm awesome? No, because he is. He says fear not. Fear not, because I am your shield. And so the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is fear. Fear. You, you, look, at, you look all through the events of Jesus' life with the disciples. You know what he would get on them about? He didn't get on them about their doubts. He got on them about their fear. Like, <clears throat> like one time they were in a boat together. And, and again, these are professional fishermen, and they're crossing over the Sea of Galilee, and a big storm's happening, and they are afraid. They are afraid. And what is Jesus doing? He's in the bottom of the boat taking a nap. So wives, this afternoon, your husband's just trying to be godly. Don't wake him up, okay? And so, you're welcome, husbands. And so, he's asleep. And what do the disciples do? They come and they go, don't you even care that we might die? They wake him up. And he says to them, why are you so afraid? That's what he says to them. Why are you so afraid? Gets up on top of the boat, tells the storms to calm down. And I think he's looking at them like, you calm down with the storms. Calm down. And then he looks at him and says, you have little faith. Get it? Why were you afraid? You have little faith. Same thing is when Jesus was walking on water and the disciples are afraid and they think it's a ghost and they cry out in fear, it's a ghost. And then Jesus calls Peter to get out of the boat and walk on the water with him. And then when Peter begins to sink, he says, he says, you have little faith. Why did you fear? Not why did you doubt? Because Peter didn't doubt Jesus. He could look. He was standing on the water. Peter, I mean, Jesus is doing just fine. But he was afraid. Do you get that? So you know what that means? If you've got a lot of doubts, I think you'll make a great disciple. I think you'll make a great disciple. And if you're afraid of stuff, you know what you do? You take your fear. You take your doubts. You take your questions. You take it all. And you say, God, I don't have much faith, but I'm putting it all on you. And now I'm going to do something about it. And that's why I think the Bible over and over and over and over talks about fear not. And why? Because he is your shield. And so he says, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Verse 2. 
But Abram said, O Lord, what would you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So what does this mean? Abram has all kind of doubts. He's like, God, I don't understand. Okay? I don't understand. You got to help me understand here. Okay? You told me that I was going to be the father of many nations. One problem, God, I don't have one kid yet. And the heir of my household is this Eleazar kid. He's not even my kid. He's just a neighborhood kid that eats all our food. That's what he is. All right? You see how big a deal this is? Some of you have doubts and questions. And some of you have thought, well, I can't follow Jesus until I figure out the dinosaurs. All right, whatever. Okay, listen. You, here's what you're supposed to do with your questions and your doubts. You just pick them up and you follow Jesus. That's right. You just pick them up and you follow after Jesus. That it's not a knowledge-based thing. I have a lot of questions too. I can't wait, wait to get to heaven and say, God, can you... Just show the movie. Can I just see the movie on creation? I just want to see how it all rolled out, okay? I'm going to get my popcorn. Won't you be there with me? Be like, oh, wow, didn't know that. I think there's going to be a lot of that in heaven. A lot of that in heaven. But faith is taking whatever you have, your fears, your doubts, your questions, your confusion, your why did this happen, God? If you're good, why didn't you answer that prayer? If you're good, why didn't this happen? And when I look at the text, sometimes I go, Abraham, what are you doing? How are you going to talk back to God like that, right? Like God shows up, Abraham, well, hold on, God. I got a couple questions for you, okay? I got no kids yet. But yet, when I look at my own prayer life, I kind of do the same thing. There's some of you right now, and you're having a dialogue with God, and it looks dumb to the angels. God's saying, step out in faith, and you're going, but God, have you checked the economy? As if God's like, no. (laughs) Or God's pressing you. Share your faith with your neighbor. And you pray, dear God, but he's an atheist. As if God's going, shut up. He knows. He knows. Because if you got all your answers, all, all your questions answered, it might not be faith that leads you to Jesus. Then it'd just be logic. And that's, a, that's just something totally different. Now, I'm not saying we're to be illogical, but I'm saying all of our questions don't have to be answered before we come to Jesus. And if you've got doubts and hang-ups and questions and you can't, figure things out philosophically, you would make a great disciple. Because you look at how Jesus handled the disciples that had legitimate questions that they didn't understand, goes pretty well for them. Look at how Jesus treats the people that think they've got it all figured out. They were called the Pharisees. They were not on his team. Like, if you look at Mark chapter 9, there's this dad, and he's got a kid that's been sick his whole life, possessed by a demon, all right? Some of you dad's like, hey, me too. All right, you're leaning in now. And so, in Mark 9... Jesus brings the demon-possessed boy, I mean, the dad brings the demon-possessed boy to Jesus and says, if you can, will you please heal my son? And Jesus kind of bows up on him and says, if I can. Like, do you know who you're talking to here? Almighty King of Kings, Lord of Lords, I do anything I want. That's kind of the, the tone. And then Jesus says to the dad, anything is possible for him who believes. You know what the dad says? The dad says, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. You know what he's saying? I want to have faith in you, and I do not see how this is going to work out. I've I've been praying and praying and praying, and God has not answered my prayers. I don't understand how this will work out. I want to believe. I just have a hard time in here believing. And you know what Jesus doesn't do? Jesus doesn't say, okay, Dad, ten faith push-ups and a Hail Mary, and then once your faith meter gets to ding, then I'll bless you. No. He heals his son. You got a lot of doubts? If that's legitimately your prayer, 
God, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. You'd make a great disciple. That's what happens here with Abraham. You know what? Obedience is most important when it doesn't make sense. When God is saying to him, you're going to be the father of many nations. And he's going, um, I don't know if you've seen my birth certificate. I'm 75 years old, okay? And my wife is almost my age. All right, it's not. I don't see how this is going to work out, God. And yet, he trusts him anyway. Do you see the difference there? That's what faith is. And so he says, God's going to like take him outside and, and help him out a little bit. Verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Abraham and says, This man shall not be your heir. So don't worry about that kid. That's not even your own. Okay, don't worry about him. Your very own son shall be your heir. What's the problem? He doesn't have a son yet. Verse 5. And he brought him, he brought Abraham outside and he said, Look towards the heaven and number the stars if you were able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So God paints this impossible vision for Abraham. Because all of you that stood up just a little while before, if you start having kids today, you might not reach the number of stars, okay? And then look at verse 6. Even when it doesn't make sense, this is probably the most important verse. And Abraham believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. And Abraham believed, believed. And God gave him what we would call imputed righteousness. Now, here's the problem with the word believe in English. The word in English, when we think believe, we think like mental assent. Yeah, I believe that, something. But that's different than what we would say to believe in. Now, in Hebrew, this word believe, it means like to trust, to commit, to surrender, to lean all of you against all of it. So you can't think like that, that Abraham just believed that what God was saying was true, but he believed in. It's like this, okay? I believe that there's a college football team in Gainesville, okay? I do not believe in such football team. You, you tracking with me? I believe in a different football team. Now, I know that some of you believe in that thing in Gainesville. No worries. Basketball's coming soon. You'll be fine, okay? But I believe. In fact, it's this bad. Um, I was at this Billy Graham Association thing on Thursday, and I'm walking out, and this guy comes up to me and introduces himself to me, and he says, Pastor Joby, yeah, 1122, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, I'm whoever, and I, I run the Tim Tebow Foundation. That's what he told me, okay? All right? And I said, go dogs. That's the first thing I said. <laughs> and I said, love what Tim Tebow's doing now for the kingdom. Really glad he's not quarterbacking the Gators anymore. That's what I told him. If we can support what he's doing for the kingdom, praise God. If it involves orange and blue, I'm not in. You understand? <laughs> now, we're going to do stuff together for the, for the kingdom, all right? But, but, again, it ain't got nothing to do with that thing in Gainesville. Do you see the difference? Now, here's what scares me. In Jacksonville, in Jacksonville, there's a bunch of you that believe that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sin. But you don't believe in him. Like, you don't trust him as your savior. You don't know him as your Lord. You don't know God as your father. I mean, you haven't taken your life and leaned it against what he's done. You've just passed a theology test because by God's common grace, you grew up in a place where the gospel is presented. And there's a difference. You see, what Abraham did here is he trusted. He fully trusted God. He said, I believe who you say you are, and I believe you'll keep your promises. And then what does God do? God gives him God's righteousness. It's called imputed righteousness. As a Christian, that means when we trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that he pays the penalty for our sin, and we are imputed or given a right standing before God. If you're really country or a little bit older, you'll know this saying. When, when somebody 
somebody grew up all crazy and rebellious and bad, and then they started going to church and got saved and started living for Jesus, you'll hear people say, he got right with the Lord. You ever heard that phrase? It's a very biblical phrase. Because to get right with the Lord, or that word righteousness in the Bible means right standing before God. When you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, you have a right standing before God. So when it says here that, <clears throat> that when, when Abraham believed or put his faith in, in the Lord, then the Lord counted it to him as righteousness, that means that Abraham got right with the Lord. He had a right standing before God. Did you know that because of what Christ has done for you, that you today could have a right standing before God? You could be, de- you could be declared righteous. Now, there's typically two responses in one of two responses in every single one of us when you hear that, that you could be declared holy and blameless or righteous before God. There are some of us that go, this would be my crowd, there are some of us that go, well, God could never count me as righteous because, dude, you don't know the things that I've done. I mean, you don't know the things that I did last night. In fact, I'm still a little hungover right now. I'm not totally sober. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about you, okay? <laughs> See how you could get confused. But there are some of you in the room like, hey, you know what? I still got a lot of buzz from last night. I would say this. You were in the right place. You were in the right place, all right? Watch the Jaguar, sober up, come back to 522 and get another clean start at just hearing the message here, all right? And if you're at 522, download the app and watch it later this week. And, And some of you, that's you. Some of you think God could never save me because I'm disqualified for the awful things that I have done. I had a guy for the last service come up here and describe something awful, awful, awful. And in tears, in tears, he's saying, you tell me how God can forgive me. It's the cross, man. I mean, it's the cross. I'm not trying to give you a sound bite, but I'm going to tell you this. Christ's death and resurrection is just bigger than anything you've ever done. Bigger than anything you've ever done. Now, you might spend the rest of the life trying to actually receive his forgiveness and forgive yourself, but at the cross, Christ forgives you. So some of you think, hey, I've already, I've, I've messed this up so bad, I'm disqualified forever. Some of you, when you hear that God can declare you righteous, you think, well, he ought to, because I'm pretty right. I mean, you would never say it that way, but you're like, oh, I'm very religious. I have grown up in the church. I've been christened, baptized, dunked, sprinkled. Every denomination in Jacksonville, I've got a check in their box, okay? I don't just come to this service. I go to midweek services all over town. I sponsor three kids. I'm in four different, some disciple group, small group, life group at every church that offers them. I don't do bad things. I don't say bad words. I only listen to Christian music. And on the back of my swagger wagon, I have a big fish for my leader husband. I have a little bit smaller fish for the submissive wife. And I have a little several guppies for all of my children being raised in the church. Thank you very much. All right, so, and the problem is you think you make you righteous. So, all of us reject God. Some of us reject God by running towards rebellion, saying, I'll do what I want, when I want, with who I want. You ain't the boss of me. And some of us reject God by turning to religion, where you go, I got this. It's the same sin. So, if you'll jump back into chapters 12, 13, and 14, the after these things, I want to tell you about these things. So, to the bad crowd. This is kind of my crowd, all right? Woo, here I am. To those of you that think you've done something so bad that it disqualifies you from being a Christian, let me tell you what happens at the end of chapter 12. Okay, at the end of chapter 12, Abraham, Father Abraham, who had many sons, the man of faith, all right, 
This guy that we're going to find out later is a friend of God. Guess what he does? They get to the promised land, and he looks around, and there's a famine. They start running out of food. So he says to his wife, Sarah, Sarah, I'm getting kind of hungry. You hungry? Yep, nothing to eat. Let's go to Egypt. There's plenty to eat in Egypt. As they're walking into Egypt, he looks at Sarah and says, Sarah, you're so pretty. She says, thank you. And see, he's like, you're welcome. And because you're so pretty, the higher-ups in Egypt are going to want to sleep with you. And if they want to sleep with you, they'll kill me to sleep with you. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to tell them, you're my sister. You're going to sleep with them anyway, and then they're going to treat me well. That's the plan. That's what Abraham did. Abraham, the father of faith. You know what he did? Pimped out his wife in prostitution for his own benefit. Now, I know we got some crappy husbands in the room, right? I've heard about you. And let me just say this, wives. Compared to Abraham, you're married to a saint, all right? Because if he doesn't leave, do whatever he's supposed to do with the toilet seat. Let me just tell you this. If you fall into water, that's your own fault, okay? Be a grown person. Look before you leap. Seriously, that's what we've come to? All right. But I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure there ain't a husband in the room that's ever pimped out his wife to prostitution and involved her in human sex trafficking for their own benefit. Okay? That's what Abraham was doing. And here's what's crazy. And he was not disqualified from having a relationship with God. And that's bad. On, on the scale of bad to good, that's like, oh, what? Right? That's bad. In fact, think about every man that we've looked at for the past several weeks in Genesis. Did you know not one of the men, the heroes of the faith of the Old Testament, could get a job at our church? Not as long as I'm the lead pastor. If Adam walks in and applies for the youth pastor job, and I go, hey, any sins you're struggling with? Yeah, but they're not my fault. They're my wife's fault. I'd be like, pack it up and leave, bro. That ain't how we do here. Or what about Noah? I wouldn't hire him either. Hey, hey, we ran a background check on you, and you're on the sexual predator list for exposing yourself. That's Noah. Remember last week? Abraham. Hey, dude, you're a part of a human trafficking ring. You get it? See, you've never heard that before in church, have you? Welcome to 1122. So, <laughs> it's what actually happened. Your sin, as bad as it is, and it's actually worse than you think because you're dead, it's JV compared to what Abraham was doing. He's like, what'd you do? Yeah, I told a lie. Okay. I pimped out my wife in prostitution. But we reconciled later. That's bad. And yet he was not disqualified. Do you get that? So I don't care how bad you think your sin is. It really is. It's so bad that somebody had to die for him. But God loves you so much that he died. That's the truth. That when Jesus died on the cross, it counted for you. It counted for Abraham. And it counted for you too. For, so for those of you that think that that um, the gospel's not big enough to save you. Christ's death and resurrection is so much bigger than whatever sin you've struggled with. It squishes it. It squishes it. It squishes it. Now, the other, the other set that says, yeah, but I grew up in church and I never really did any bad things. And in fact, Pastor Joby, I wish you would quit um, mentioning all those bad things because I feel like those people get a pass in our church. Some of you feel that way. Well, guess what? When Abraham, after he finishes pimping out his wife, and I just say pimp a lot to make the religious uncomfortable, Okay. After that, finds out that his nephew, Lot, that, that, well, he and his nephew couldn't get along. So if you got family issues, again, you make a great disciple. And so he and Lot get together and says, okay, you take your people wherever you want, and I'll go the other way. And so Lot picks one side of the road, and Abraham takes the other side of the road. And Lot chose poorly. 
because where Lot set up camp to start his new little venture, this um, raiding army comes in and wipes everybody out and captures Lot and all of his people as prisoners of war. And so Abraham, who's full of faith, he gets together, I think it's 318 well-trained men. So he gets like the SWAT team, Navy SEALs, Airborne Ranger kind of people. And he says, let's do it, boys. He goes into um, the bad guy's camp, kills all the bad guys, and rescues Lot and his family. And he takes all the spoils of victory. Because back in the day when you killed everybody, you just got all of their stuff. And then with all of the spoils of victory and this plunder that he had gotten from his victory, the first thing he does, and you can read about it in chapter 14, is he goes to the high priest and he brings his tithes and offerings to God. Why? Because we bring our first and best to God because he first loved us by giving us his best. And so so Abraham does a very righteous thing. Before there was ever a law, before there was a commandment about tithing, then Abraham, in love and response to God, does a very good and righteous thing and brings his tithes to God. Now, just one off. Remember, I taught on first fruits two weeks ago. You received the message. And that very week, I told you guys last week, that, that, the, that the giving here at the church, the tithes and offerings at the church, went up that one week for 30%. It's like we were hovering here. It jumped to 30%. And I said, you outed yourself. You showed us what faithfulness looks like here at our church. And if that's a one-week thing, shame on us. And then last week, you know what happened? It went up another 19%. Amen? Well done, church. Well done. Yeah. You got a little nervous there for a minute, didn't you? You were like, oh, no. Don't blame me. We gave. Okay, so way to go. Way to go. That is good. It's, it just reveals what's in your heart. All right, now, way to go. <clears throat> but you know what does not happen at the end of chapter 14? After, after Abraham tithes to God and brings the first 10% to God, you know what does not happen? He's not counted as righteous. It's not like God looks at that and says, hey, way to go. You've earned it. It doesn't count. You know when he gets counted as righteous or right with God? When he puts his faith in it. Do you know what that means? That means both the rebel and the religious are made righteous when you put your faith in God. That's it. So those of you that have really screwed it up bad, I know, me too. You can be saved. For those of you that have grown up in church, I've got good news for you too. You can be saved too. It's not impossible for you either. It's not by your own good deeds, but it's by putting your faith in Christ. That's what we find out about Abraham here in these things. Now, if you jump down to verse 7, it says this, And he he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to possess it. Verse 8, But Abraham says, oh, Lord, how am I to know? And isn't that the question that you have? Like, God, how do I know if I'm right with you? How do I know? It's a legitimate question. And so here's how God's going to answer him. I'll just kind of tell you before we get there because it gets real Old Testament, and i got to explain it. God says this. Here's how you'll know. Um, We're going to make a covenant together. Or literally in the Hebrew, we're going to cut a covenant. So how do you know if you're right with God? By entering into a covenant with him. And so here's the covenant. So in verse 8, he says, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Verse 9, God says to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, and he cut them in half, and he laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. 
And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Verse 12. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possession. In January, we're going to study the book of Exodus, and that's what all of that was talking about. It was prophecy about the book of Exodus. Verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites has yet to be complete. Verse 17, and when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, the pieces of the animals. Verse 18, and on that day, the Lord God, or the Lord made a covenant with Abram, that's an old covenant or the Old Testament, saying, your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So let me explain it real quick. So in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, you would, met, you would cut the covenant. So you'd get these animals, you'd slice them in half, and, and you would put one on one side or half of them on one side, half of them on the other. And then you and the person making the covenant would walk down the little trail there in the middle. And so when Abraham falls asleep and he sees the the, the pot and the smoke going through the deal, that represents God, that God is walking through this path. And, and it means a couple of things when you would make a covenant with somebody. First of all, it's not a contract. It's not a, if you keep your part, then I keep my part. That's not how it goes. It's a promise. It's like, I promise. And we're in this together. We are walking through this together. And the thing with the animals was, and if we break our covenant, may this happen to us. That's what it means. And God, to show that by Abraham's faith, he was made righteous. God makes a covenant with him. So you remember, Noah had a covenant with a rainbow. And then this week, Abraham gets a covenant. And then what we're going to see, we'll pick it up in January, is that when Moses comes along and gives the law of the Ten Commandments, God makes a covenant with his people that way too. That God is a covenantal God. And in the old covenant, maybe you don't know this, but the word testament and covenant, they're the exact same thing. So in our Bibles, we have an Old Testament and a New Testament, or an Old Covenant and a New Covenant. And in the Old Covenant, what would happen, is we'll see this when we study the book of Exodus and going forward, is that God is going to give, give his people commandments, the Ten Commandments, but there's actually over 600. And then essentially he's going to say, I'm your God and you're my people, and here's how we're supposed to act, and here come all the commandments. But when you break the commandments, and the only people that are going to break the commandments are the people sitting on your left and right, okay? That means all of us every day break the commandments, all right? And when you do that, here's the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. That one time a year, all the nation of Israel, all the people of God will gather together and you will confess your sins or confess the commandments you have broken. And the high priest will stand before you and he's got two lambs or two goats. Actually, or a lot of times it was a lamb and a goat. And when you confess your sin, that the, that the priest is going to take your sin and transfer it to the head of this goat and then take this goat and send it out of Jerusalem, out into the wilderness to wander around and die. And it was called the scapegoat. And, and, and God would give us a picture of transferring our sins onto the head of a scapegoat and casting it out as far as the east is from the west. Sound familiar? And then the other lamb, the high priest would take the lamb and he'd go into this little special room in the tent or the tabernacle or the, or the, uh, the temple. And it was called the Holy of Holies. And this little room represented the very presence of God. And in that room, there was this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. If you want to study more about it, Rent Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, that's what it's about. And in that ark, it was called the Ark of the Covenant, and the covenant was the law, the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments were inside the ark. 
And on the ark was this thing called the mercy seat, which the people thought that's where God sat. That was the throne room of God. That was his presence. So one time a year, on the day of atonement, then the high priest would go in after he cast the sins away on the scapegoat, and he'd take a lamb of God, and he would sacrifice it, and he would sprinkle the blood of the lamb over the, 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 the ark to cover the sins of the people for one year. And that was the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. So every year, we'd confess our sins, and the high priest would shed the blood of the lamb, sprinkle it on the ark to cover our sins for one year. And then, about 2,000 years ago, there's this guy named John the Baptizer, and he's baptizing a bunch of people down at the Jordan. Crazy man, real hairy, screamed and yelled a lot. A lot of people will show up and watch that, okay? And he's saying, repent and be baptized. And then one day, one day, while he's washing people, baptizing people in the Jordan, he says, behold, which means, hey, everybody wake back up and listen. Look, there is, behold, the Lamb of God that comes to take away the sins of all mankind. To which the good Orthodox, Old Covenant Jewish people would say, time out. Don't you mean another Lamb of God that comes to cover the sins of the Jewish people for one year? And John the Baptist goes, nope, that was just a picture of that. And that dude is the Lamb of God, not another Lamb of God. That comes to not cover but take away the sins, not just of the Jewish people, but of all mankind. And that's the new covenant. So if you look at who Abraham is in light of the new covenant, you can see it in James chapter 2, verse 23. It just says this. It's in your notes, on your app. It says, And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And Abraham was called a friend of God. You see, God loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, so that you could be made righteous before God, but it gets better. Some of you think God just wants to smite you, whatever that means. God actually wants to have a relationship with you. And the old covenant was about obeying the law, and when you don't obey the law, then you've got to kill some goats and stuff, all right? And then it was to point to the new covenant, or I think I'm pretty safe in calling it the new and improved covenant. And the new and improved covenant is not just a newer version, but it's better. It's better. And so um, if, if you look up Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, what you get is you get this book written to a bunch of Jewish people that totally understood the old covenant. And the whole book of Hebrews is saying Jesus came to bring the new and improved covenant. Now, many of the same things are the same. That it's not your, if you do really bad things, you're not disqualified. And if you do good things, you're not automatically in. But it's when you put your faith in him that he, that that's what makes you right with God. And God wanted to be a friend with Abraham. But in the new and improved covenant, it's even better. So I'll read it for you. It's in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in 11, it says this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, or kind of the new and improved covenant, not made with hands, that is, not of creation. He, that's Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So in other words, we don't have to do that every year. It's like once and for all. Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience, or in other words, make us right with God, to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Verse 15, here's kind of the big closer for him. Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new 
covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. All right, here's what it means to redeem. If you've ever, um, if you've ever redeemed a coupon, you've participated in a picture of the gospel. All right? So all you Groupon people, you didn't know you were serving Jesus. All right, you were. It's a picture of the gospel. So you go out of your mailbox or you check your email or whatever, and there's a coupon, free soup. And you're like, sweet. I did nothing to deserve it. I didn't even ask for it. It just showed up. I get free soup. And you take the coupon and you go to Publix and you get your soup and you walk up there. And say, I would like this soup, please. And you redeem the coupon and they give you the soup. And what did you pay for it? Nothing. It was a free gift of soup. But what did it cost Campbell's? The full price of the soup. That's what happens at the cross for you. That's what it means to be redeemed in the new covenant. In the new covenant, you get invited by God himself into a relationship with him. And you go, what do I do? Here's what you do. You're just, you, you, you are to be redeemed. And you go in and say, okay, I trust Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And you get new eternal life. What does it cost you? Nothing. It's a free gift. What did it cost the creator? Everything. The full price of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what it's talking about. And not only that, not only that, it's a new and improved covenant. In the old covenant, your sins would be covered for one year at a time. In the new and improved covenant, your sins are washed away for all eternity. That's better. In the old covenant, Abraham is a friend of God. In the new covenant, you know what we're called when we trust Christ as our Savior? We're called a son of God. And the reason in the first century it was important to distinguish between son and daughter, it's not the same today. But in the first century, only a son got the inheritance. So in our culture today, it would mean that we are full heir, son and daughters of God. Do you see how that's better? Like, um, Walker Day is my friend. He's my friend. When I die, he gets none of my stuff. You get that? Nothing. It's all going to my kids. And when you put your faith in God, like Abraham put his faith in God, when you put your faith in God through Jesus Christ, guess what? You become a full heir, son or daughter of God, and that's the new covenant. So if you were to ask yourself that legitimate question, so how do I get right with God? Same way Abraham did. You put your faith in him. And the way we put our faith in him is through what Christ did to, to bring about that new covenant. You enter into a covenant with God. And that, that your faith in Jesus will be counted to you as righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way. That God made him who was without sin to be sin for us, that we would be made his righteousness. And that when you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior as not another lamb to cover your sin, but the lamb to take away your sin, then guess what? He pays the price, and you're counted as righteous. And you're not just a friend of God. It's better than that. It's better than that. That you and I can be full heir sons and daughters of God. See, you didn't know that was available for you. Some of you thought you'd done something so bad it screwed it up, and that wasn't an option for you. That is not the truth. Here's the truth. When Jesus died on the cross, it counted for you, every single one of you. And some people thought you could be good enough, and you just can't. You can't. There's nothing you can do to make up for the sins of the past, but Christ on the cross can't. He can. And when he died on the cross, religious people, it counted for you too. And we all come to him the same. We all come to him the same. And so the big question is, the big thing that, that Abraham really teaches us is this, to ask this question, so where's your faith? 
Because we're all putting our faith in something. Some people are putting our faith in, well, I'll try to be good enough. Listen, one day you'll stand before the Lord and that'll be exposed. And if you think you can be good enough, I've got horrible news for you. You just can't. You, you just can't. And I'm saying that you've got to take your faith and go all in with Jesus. And some of you think, well, I've screwed up my whole faith option because I've messed up too bad. Nah, the love of God is bigger than any sin you've ever committed. And it can count for you too. See, when I was a teenager, and, and I went to this camp where Coach Bull Lee was, was the, kind of the pastor there. You see, that is, for me, when I moved from believing that Jesus died on the cross. Because listen, I, was, I grew up in the South. So we, believe, we all believe God. We believed in God and college football and NASCAR. Okay, that's what we believed in. And everybody had their appropriate holiday and season, and thank God they did not overlap. We thought, well, he must be in charge of that. And I believe that all those Bible stories probably happened. But as a teenager, in a moment, when I entered into that covenant with God, that new and improved covenant, when I surrendered my life to the Lordship of Christ, it moved from believing that to believing in. And when I believed in Jesus, that's the moment where I said, I surrender. I'm not in charge of me anymore. You're in charge. And that's what Hebrews says is the new covenant, that Christ, once and for all, paid the price for you. Did you know that today could be your day? That's right. Today. Today. Today could be your day. Not tomorrow, not next week, not once you get your questions answered, not once you learn how to forgive yourself for all those awful things you've done. All of that is irrelevant to the moment right now where the new covenant is being offered to you. And all you have to do, sort of like the coupon, is receive the free gift that Christ paid everything for, for you to be made right with God and to be a son or daughter of God. So if you would, would you please bow your head where you are? I only ask you to bow your head and close your eyes just so you can kind of focus on what might be the most important question that you ever ask yourself. Where have I put my faith? Have you put your faith in your goodness? Or have you thought, well, I don't get a faith option because of my bad past? Did you know both of you were invited to a new covenant with Jesus? And so if today is the day that you say, in this moment right now, my past will not define me, my good works will not define me, but Christ's death and resurrection defines me. I want to give up control of my life and surrender my life to the Lordship of Christ. Then right where you are, would you just raise your hand and say, Lord, here I am, I surrender to you. And in that moment you were made, it is accounted to you as righteousness and that you are a son or a daughter of God. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you pursue us, that you love us. God, I thank you for the faith and the faithfulness of Abraham. But God, I thank you even more for the love and the mercy and the grace poured out on the cross of Jesus Christ. God, I pray for the man and woman that has been trying to earn their righteousness by being good. Lord, I pray that they would surrender to you. You would make them righteous. And then out of an overflow of their love for you, they'd do good things. And God, I pray for the man, the woman, the student that feels so far away from you and they thought that they could never come back to you because of the things that they've done. Lord, I pray they'd come to their senses and when they turn to you, they'd find a heavenly father running after them. And Lord, I pray that salvation would be in this place. We pray it in the good, strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Would you please stand? We're going to close the service like Abraham did in chapter 12. It's actually what we do every week. That worship... That worship is our response to God for who He is and what He's done. And so, um, Abraham built an altar. We're not going to ask you to build an altar. We already built them. If you need some work to do with God, you just need to come and pray. We would invite you to respond by coming and praying. We're going to 
bring our offerings, bring our first fruits to God. You can do it on your app. By the way, you app givers are just doing awesome. All right? If you don't know how that works, find a teenager. They'll show you. Okay, you can do it that way. Um, you can bring your tithes and offerings through the giving kiosk back there, one of the giving boxes around. And we respond by lifting up our voices together to, to worship God for who he is and what he's done. Let us respond.